Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Inside the Banjoverse, exploring the minds of folk music's great artists. If you love the stories behind bluegrass, Irish, folk and Americana, then this podcast is for you. This is Enda Scahill from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us, and mostly just one banjo. That's me. The word prodigy gets bandied around a lot these days, but it sits very lightly on the shoulders of one Sierra Hull, Tennessee-born mandolinist, singer and songwriter. She played the Grand Ole Opry at the age of 10, and at the age of 12 played Carnegie Hall. Before she was 14 years old, she signed with Rounder Records and issued her debut album, Secrets. She's the first bluegrass musician to receive a presidential scholarship at Berklee College of Music. Please enjoy this conversation with Sierra Hull. this um yeah sorry to interrupt you how do you pronounce your name i know we've 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 officially met before no we've never or, met before okay i didn't think we had yeah i no. was like i don't know if, if i know I've, I've met david and and his brother but i don't i don't think we've officially met or the no. other guy no you haven't been yeah you but haven't. i did get to sing on your record which is wonderful so <laughs> that's right so, yeah. you know it's funny it's like you you feel like you have made these connections or you know, know people even when you haven't officially met. So anyway, sorry to ask that, but is it? It's Enda. Enda. Okay, that's yeah. what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Just making sure. <laughs> I should have said, hey, Sierra, it's great to talk to you. I've never met you before and this is lovely and thank you yeah. for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, no. Yeah. I, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, no, it's great. All right, we'll kick off. I'm live in Galway and I'm chatting with Sierra Hull. Sierra is Tennessee-born, lives in Nashville, is multiple IBMA Mandolin Player of the Year, Grammy-nominated musician, and a technical wizard. Wizard? Wizard. On oh. the mandolin. <laughs> Singer, incredibly accomplished. And uh, you can stop blushing now, but I think that's a very good, oh. uh, that's a fair introduction, I think. I mean, I'm a huge oh, fan man. of your music and a great admirer of your playing. So how are Thank you? Thank you so much. Oh man, I'm I'm doing good. Yeah, just uh, hanging here in Nashville, uh, staying in as we all are, and just you know, kind of adjusting to life at home. Yeah, yeah. This is I'm going to say the longest you've been at home for about ten years. Oh yeah, 
definitely. Definitely the longest I've been home since I left home, since I lived with my parents, you know. So it's it's definitely been interesting just to kind of, you know, get the experience of being here. We, uh, you know, we're enjoying a lot of things about it. There's some things that have been really wonderful just to have kind of a change of pace and kind of a season of rest in some ways. And then in other ways, it's extremely difficult because it's not, you know, you know, we're not able to go out and do the thing we all love. And, and uh, of course, we're all learning new tricks. As you know, here we are on Skype, you know, yep. we're all learning new technical things. And I've done a lot of just like videoing and filming and recording and, you know, things that I don't always have time to do. So I think, you know, in some ways, it's good because we're learning, but it can be uh, stressful as well to just kind of the, the way work looks uh, shift into this kind of technical space. So would you would you say you're busier now than if you're touring, which brings its own level of business, obviously, because it's travel and all that goes along with that. But now that you're at home, do you feel that there's this pressure to constantly create content because you're not visibly on the road? It's a little bit of both. I think, yeah, in some ways, like you have the the stress of just being on the road and, and, you know, the lack of sleep and the crazy schedule and all that, that can really wear on you. Um, but I think when you know you're about to go on tour, you're in the middle of a long tour, you really kind of get in this workflow and you know what's ahead of you. You can look at your schedule, you know, months out and kind of know what's coming up. With this, I feel like um, it's a little bit different in that I can go from you know, thinking, okay, well, I'm going to have a little time next week to suddenly I have like 12 things that pop up and, and there are things I want to do, you know, like I'm thrilled to get to chat with you today and stuff like that. But, but just little things like this, doing interviews or recording or whatever that, um, in the scope of a day seem short, but a lot of these things actually end up taking more time. And, and so I've already realized it's sort of critical for me to try to you know, not overcommit myself right now to things just because it can really get kind of cuckoo in a hurry. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. And now <laughs> I'm I'm really impressed with your social media presence. Um, I follow you on Instagram and it's like it's really good. It's really curated and it looks fantastic. Is there a is there a huge pressure that comes along with that? And I, I'm speaking from my own point of view in that when we Banjo Trees on tour, the social media stuff takes care of itself because you're creating all this content while you're on tour. And then when you come off tour, like now, um, I, I feel this huge pressure. And that whole FOMO thing that social media brings up and am I doing enough? Are we putting out enough? Is it getting enough likes? It's not getting as many likes as that band over there. Do you suffer from any of that stuff? Or are you just like super cool, throw up loads of great mandolin videos and forget about it? It's a little of both. I think we all have those moments of being like, oh, I should probably be doing more or is what I'm is, is the things that I'm doing like, um, you know, what I should be doing, you know, or should I be focusing my time doing something else? Um, but, yeah, it, I think it's a mixed bag for me because some things, you, you know, I feel like at times it's nice for you to say that you find my content engaging because sometimes I'm just like oh I'm kind of a hot mess with it all and I'm just like throwing stuff up and and I'm not really always like curating it intentionally you know like um, I posted a video a couple nights ago just kind of on a whim because I was sitting there practicing something and you know something I'd kind of been working on for a while so I was like you know what I, I and I, I record myself a lot um, I film myself a lot when I'm practicing 
just because I find it to be a really helpful tool to be able to go back and watch yourself or listen. And you can, you know, notice a lot of things by kind of observing the video that you might not when you're in the middle of playing or singing or going, okay, well, I seem really tense when I'm singing this. And why is that? How can I work on that? Or, you know, oh, when I was playing this, I'm actually dragging there and I didn't think I was, but, you know, I need to work on my rhythm in that spot. And so I think through the process of that, sometimes I wind up creating content almost by accident um, because I'm just filming myself a lot as I practice. And sometimes I'll be like, oh, well, that's kind of fun. I'll stick that up. You know, so that was kind of the case with the last video that I posted that I was just like, this is the one you know, filming myself practicing shedding this this tune I was working on. That's the, the you're playing a five string guitar and you just kind of that, that's the one. Uh, right? Yeah, it's a mandolin, actually. Oh, yeah, five yeah. string mandolin. That's phenomenal. I was yeah. just going to go and chop off my fingers after I watched that. I was like, that's, you know, just oh, here I yeah. am kicking back in an armchair playing mind bending uh, picking technique. It's it's phenomenal. And like I've, I've written two books. Thank you. That's a been a fun one to work on. Yeah. So I, I've written two books on the banjo uh, on, on technique. And I'm a big, big advocate of technique because Irish banjo, I don't know if you've ever tried it. It's an incredibly difficult instrument because it's big and awkward. It doesn't have very tight string action and there's a lot of digging in that's required yeah. or there's a lot of effort, that's physical effort that's required. So I'm a big advocate of technique. When you were learning, right, or we can, we're going to talk about your early days uh, shortly because it's very impressive. Did you pick up the mandolin and immediately kind of go, yeah, gonna, this is just pick it and, it and picked it the correct way? Or did you learn a specific technique? Um, well, I think I had some, you know, habits right away that, you know, most of us do when we first pick up an instrument and you're, it's foreign to you. You don't really know, you know, what the proper pick stroke technique is and things like that. And so I remember early on playing, you know, down, down, down <laughs> instead of alternating pick strokes. So in like yeah. bluegrass music and pretty much any kind of flat picking, you know, acoustic music, the, the technique is down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, um, you know, occasional exceptions to that, of course, but uh, I remember trying to play a tune like Old Joe Clark, and I just learned it. I mean, it was like one of my first tunes, and I was, you know, playing down, 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 and I remember my dad saying, okay, well, so now you've got the notes, and my dad was just learning to play himself as well. He was getting into it, and uh, I remember him saying, well, now you need to practice playing down, up, down, up, down, up, down, and I thought, man, like, that seems really hard, but I can do it so much faster this way. And so I was like, ding, 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 ding. and he said, well, that may be true now, but if you really work on the other thing, you'll be able to play way faster and more correctly, you know, if you do that. So, you know, thankfully somebody like my dad had, even though he wasn't, you know, a seasoned musician or anything, he was just learning too, but he was watching things and observing people and, 
was able to kind of steer me in the right direction. And I've had things kind of change in my technique in, in small ways over the years. You guys probably experienced that a lot um, in the first music community as well, because it's such a, a similar thing of like virtuosic playing and all these, you know, incredible sessions where people sit around and jam these tunes that everybody knows. And so I was lucky to kind of be around that in the bluegrass world early on where I got to, even if it wasn't like getting to watch some, you know, professional level musician. Most of the people I grew up around were just hobby musicians that, you know, played for fun and weren't virtuosic players, but, but could play. And so, you know, I, I learned a lot about just the genre and, and the sounds and, you know, the sort of form of the way this music typically works and soloing and all those things. So I think just being able to be around it that much, as well as just listening to a lot of music and sort of, connecting to certain types of players early on that I was like, okay, I'm really attracted to the way that player sounds and then trying to emulate it. Mm -hmm. So I think it all kind of comes together just through like a deep love of, of being around it, helping an ear for what you want to sound like. It doesn't sound like you ever uh, were made to practice. It sounds like you picked it up and fell in love with it. And it was just a very organic, natural process. Um, is, is that true? Are you, you're, were you very self-motivated to play the mandolin? Was it like, I have found my instrument and I absolutely adore it? Or were there times when your your dad or your mom was like, Sierra, you got to go in and do your half an hour practice right now? I think both things are true, actually. So I fell in love with it immediately. I really did. I, I knew from the time I was eight years old, like, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to make albums. I, I You know, because we were getting all these um new CDs every week where it was just like a constant discovery of, you know, what became my heroes, you know, it's like, Oh wow, here's an Alison Krauss album. Who's that? Oh, amazing. You know? And then they fall in love with that. Or I remember getting my first nickel Creek album or discovering bands like blue highway. And I don't know, in the, the bluegrass world, Tony Rice, people that really went on to influence me a lot in those early days. And so I, all I could think from as an eight-year-old just getting into this is, wow, I love this and I want to do that. I want to make my own album someday and I want to be able to tour and play concerts and play festivals. And, um, you know, that love was deeply there immediately. So like since that time, I've never imagined doing anything else with my life. Like from the time I was eight years old, it was like, this is what I want. Um, and in a way, I'm like, wow, what an amazing thing to be able to find that that early. But also you have to keep in mind, I was eight years old. And so there would be times where uh, I had an older brother and I remember um, we'd go to a festival and like he would go off and he would, you know, throw the football with some of the other kids and I would be, you know, the one there jamming. And occasionally I would want to go do something like that too. And I remember sometimes you know, feeling like, you know, my dad, he would say, cause they would spend sometimes when my, you know, I didn't grow up in a wealthy family by no means. And so my parents have been hard workers my entire life. And sometimes when I was younger would spend their last, you know, five or $10 on gas money to drive us to a festival, you know? And so I understood the importance, I think early on that if they're going to go out of their way, to do all this for me, then I need to take it serious. And I think that was, you know, reminded to me at times, like, you know, if you were going to be serious about it, then we'll really do all this. But like, if you're not, then, 
you know, so there would be times where I would be reminded that it was important for me to take it seriously. Or if this is really, if I really wanted it, like I said, I wanted it, then I needed to work hard. I mean, my dad gave me some pretty incredible advice um, when I was probably nine or 10 years old. I mean, I was really young and hadn't been playing but a couple years, but Alison Krauss really became my hero. I was nine years old when I got my first Alison album and you know, it just blew my mind. I don't know what it was about it. I mean, it's great music. I still think it holds up to some of my favorite stuff, but I just immediately connected to it and became incredibly obsessed with finding all the music I could find by her and the station. And it was just my, you know, she's my hero. I have pictures of myself playing on the Grand Ole Opry with Allison that, you know, I signed my name and, and it says nine years old. <laughs> and this was before I had ever met her. Um, and so it was kind of my dream to just get to share the stage with her at some point. And so I started trying to learn all the the mandolin from this guy named Adam Steffi who played on, you know, some of those early records. So I started trying to go through those albums and, and learn all I could. And, and if I ever had a moment of getting kind of lazy where I wasn't practicing very much, my dad would say things like, you know, You've not been practicing that much lately, and you know what's going to happen one of these days. Allison Krauss, she's going to call you to come play with her, and you're not going to be ready. <laughs> and so there was kind of this sense of like knowing that, you know, somebody like my dad, I think, really believed in me and what he thought I would be able to achieve. Um, and I don't know if some of that was just said innocently to try to get me to to really practice or if he really thought that might happen. I think we were all really surprised when it did, <laughs> but, but, you know, think things like that would, would kind of make me go, Oh, okay. Yeah. I better get to work. Or if we, you know, another, uh, kind of realistic approach. I mean, my parents, they're not stage parents by no means. They, they never wanted the limelight always kind of in the background and, and, uh, you know, definitely tried to teach my brother and I to keep our feet on the ground and, you know, not get caught up in any kind of achievement or anything like that. But I remember, um, I always knew they were proud of me. There wasn't any like lack of confidence in, in knowing that, but, you know, they would always be really honest and real in critiquing things if they thought that we could do better at something. And I remember my dad too, uh, when I would, kind of have moments of laziness or whatever as a, a young musician, he would say to me, uh, I think I was probably 10 years old around this time too. I remember him saying, you know, Sierra, you've been playing a couple years now. I mean, I was learning new fiddle tunes every week, you know, just uh, probably already knew, I don't know how many fiddle tunes at that point, you know, enough that I could go to a jam and, and be able to play along with a lot of them. And he's, you already know enough that if you never learned another thing, that'd be enough for you to just enjoy music with your life. But if you really want to do it like you say you do, you really want to have a career out of it and you really want to go on and make albums and do all these things, you're going to have to keep working at it because, you know, it's going to require more of you than that. And he said right now, and this is so true. He said, right now, you're 10 years old or however old I was at the time. And he goes, you know, somebody sees you at a jam and they go, oh, my goodness, what a cute little girl. We can't believe she can play that way. <laughs> and he said, and that's great and all. He said, you are really good for a 10-year-old. He said, but one day you're going to wake up and you're going to be 18. And if you play like a 10-year-old when you're 18, nobody's <laughs> going to care. 
<laughs> and so when you're 18, you need to be sound like you've been playing 10 years. You know, you need to sound like you've been playing that long. And when you get 25, you need to sound like you've been working that long because if you just continue to stay the same and you don't push yourself, you know, so it was good advice, really, a, a very realistic advice for a young person. But but I feel like it was worthy advice um, that I really still remember. It sounds like incredible advice because I, I remember what it was like to be 11 and people would go, oh, you're great on the banjo. How long have you been playing? And they're like, oh, three years. And they're like, wow. And then when you're 28, you're great on the banjo. How long have you been playing? Uh, 20 years. <laughs> it's like, well, you'd want to be yeah. good. <laughs> Yeah, you hope you're good at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So my my wife, exactly. my wife Chilean specifically wanted me to ask you this question um, because we were talking about you know you playing with Sam Bush when you were nine and playing on the Grand Ole Opry when you were ten, Carnegie Hall when you were twelve, and we, our son Matthew is is ten at the moment and he's he's off school now because schools are closed, and trying to get him to sit down at the table for longer than seven and a half minutes to do any amount of work. Because he's he's very clever and he's like I'm so bored I, and he you know he won't do anything so <laughs> she's like when you're talk, when you're talking to Sierra you have to ask her you know brilliant mandolin player did she struggle with geography did you hate math <laughs> did you just stick went to school and go I hate all of it it's all so boring I just want to play the mandolin or were you just great at everything well no I certainly was great at everything I I was always a good student I think mostly out of uh, sometimes look at it and I think wow it's kind of funny because I was always like an honor roll student and had good grades but I think it was more out of feeling like it was just like expected of me like I I knew that if I wasn't trying I did you know I've always kind of been a um and sometimes by default like a people pleaser you know or a people pleaser uh maybe that's not the right way to describe it but you know I don't like disappointing people and so it's like I always wanted to like make my teachers proud I think I've always wanted to like like, you know, do my best for whatever situation I'm in, um, for my own dignity, but also just cause you know, like having a teacher be disappointed in me as a kid would like always felt kind of devastating or something. So, so I think I always worked hard to be a good student, but there was no doubt in my mind that playing the mandolin was exactly what I was going to do and what I was going to do in my life. So it's funny. I think sometimes I, I was always good at studying or doing whatever I had to do to get by, but I think a lot of it I didn't always retain. It's funny. I look back at certain stuff. Like if you had me solve an algebra problem right now, I think I'd be like, I don't even know how I like, you know, somewhere it feels like a world, a lost world that I like because I didn't love it. I didn't love it. I never loved math or certain things, but I, um, but I managed to be a good student, I think, just because I would be willing to put in the work to get the job done. But it was something I kind of quickly let go of, I think, once I got through that, if that makes sense. Mm. And so at no point did you ever want to be anything else? Like, did it ever cross your mind to be a teacher or an astronaut or a drive a truck? Or was it always music? Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. 
Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. It's always been music since I started playing. I mean, I know it sounds wild, but there's never been a moment of me imagining something else. Um, so I think like when you're a young person and you're, and, and granted, like I was very fortunate too. I had some incredible opportunities and things that, that sort of, I'm sure helped, um, solidify the belief that it would be possible for me to, you know, go on and, and make a career and life out of it. But I think from an early age, I just always felt like, um, and it, it wasn't cause I thought I was a good musician. It really like, like. Truly, I know it sounds bizarre or maybe it sounds egotistical to say, you know, I always knew this is what I would do. But it's it's not because I thought, oh, well, I'm so good that I'm going to get through this. I think I just went, there is nothing else like this has to be it because this is the thing that that I so desire. Um, yeah. So <laughs> not really. I can't really ever imagine ever seriously considering anything else. So would you say that you're a driven person? Like, are you driven to succeed? Are you driven to get better? You talked about practicing, which is a thing in bluegrass music that uh, I, I don't know if it exists to the same extent in Irish music, because um, I guess the technical requirements to play Irish music at a, at a, at a very high level, you, you, you could top out there in your early, late, you know, early to late teens because of the nature of bluegrass soloing and where that can take you, like the ability to play all of that stuff is something that you would constantly need to practice at. Are you certainly, that's what you spoke about. Um, have you huge goals in mind Mu musically? I mean, and almost technically, I think is what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think I've always been very driven and, um, you know, I, I think I love a lot of different styles of music. So I think that um, if I were only, you know, desiring to be, say, a bluegrass musician, which is definitely where I cut my teeth and where my roots lie and, and the things that I um, probably spent at least a, a good 10 years or more of my early life was almost dedicated to almost nothing but that, you know, just being in that world, playing that style of music. And then as I started to get older, I started to just explore other avenues and other things. So I, I would say somewhere over the past, you know, at least eight to 10 years, I've, you know, kind of uh, explored other avenues musically and things that I've always enjoyed, but, but just, you know, have, feel like I have more opportunity to explore whatever it is. And I think having um, an open 
view and love of music has helped me to to keep exploring and, and moving forward. Whereas um, kind of like what you're talking about with Irish music, like the, the technical things, I feel like, yeah, from a technical standpoint, there are things even as a bluegrass musician that you can, you know, get to a place of a really high level at a young age. And, and sort of if that's, you know, if that's what you're going for and you're sort of saying in that genre, you can kind of, you know, it's hard to say when you ever master something, you know what I mean? There's always something new to learn. I think, yeah, it's just I've been driven to work on things as I've been inspired by various things just because I've allowed myself to, you know, um, explore those and those avenues and sort of see where they take me. And do you have uh, an interest in Irish music? And I ask that because um, knowing a lot of bluegrass musicians, the there's a swing that's in Irish music that's it's very subtle and it's not always easily uh, grasped which is not a word, but we'll go with it anyway, uh, by musicians hey, that, <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't grow up with Irish music. And of course, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a listening thing. It's like if I sit down in a bluegrass session, I don't automatically understand or feel the form of where bluegrass solos go because the notes move in a different pattern than they do in Irish music, which is embedded in me. Sure. But there's a swing in Irish music, particularly in jigs, that sometimes when you hear bluegrass musicians trying to play it, it doesn't come across the same way. Have, have you have you tried it? Is it something that you've an interest in? I I love you know any chance that I've had to really like be around Irish musicians or or hear um, you know jams along the way. I've actually never been to Ireland still which, you know, is on my bucket list. I really hope to get to make it there. And I would love nothing more than to be able to actually, you know, collaborate and, and play some, some Irish music. I've never really um, dove into, you know, learning a ton of the tunes. I know that, that there's, you know, uh, very similarly just an endless amount of songs and jigs and all these things in the repertoire, similarly to where there is in bluegrass where you can, in a session and everybody everybody knows the language and speaks the language and and kind of like breathes together in that way so you know i i've got loads to learn about irish music but i certainly would love to i mean it's some of the most joyful uh moments of music that i've experienced when i've gotten to be around it i got to do the um transatlantic tour this year and, uh, you know, a few Irish musicians on that tour. And it's just so fun. I mean, it was just every time I just get to, you know, sort of be a small part of, of creating that music was really exciting to me. So I hope to do more of it, but I certainly have a lot to learn about it. Yeah, I love that you've played with the creme de la creme of Irish music and haven't, I haven't really done much of it, just the transatlantic sessions. <laughs> just the very best. Well, I mean, you know, you feel like an imposter, you know, a little bit <laughs> to dive in there with those guys. Yeah, yeah. But, That's any time I... But it was incredible, yeah. incredible experience. Yeah. Um, so you, you married a musician, Justin Moses, who's, who's a fantastic musician in his own right, of course, and you travel with him, tour with him from time to time. I know you have the Sierra Hull band and you have various different outfits. What's it like touring and traveling with your husband? Um, 
I would be quite jealous. I'd love to bring my wife with me the whole time. Um, maybe not the 10-year-old all of the time, but definitely Jillian. <laughs> <laughs> I'd sleep an awful lot better. I know that for a fact. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but I'd be, yeah. I'd be really competitive. And she doesn't play music, um, which so far, maybe now because I'm 44, I'd be able for it a little bit better. Definitely in my 20s when we met and got married, if she had been a really good musician, I would have been like, oh, I don't know, is this going to work? But what's it like um, being married and touring with, a, with another really great musician? Um, well, you know, we met through music. With, that's kind of been um, a, a big part of our relationship the whole time, you know, that we've known each other back when we were friends. And then, you know, when we uh, actually got together and, and um, we've played together in so many different kind of settings, but, you know, mostly I would say uh, under the umbrella of him joining me on the road under, you know, my band kind of umbrella. Um, we've done that a lot like years ago, you know, where he would come out and, you know, do a long tour or, um, you know, fill in basically he's a multi-instrumentalist. So it's kind of come in handy at times if I needed somebody to, you know, play fit a lot of gig or, Hey, I need a banjo on something, you know? So he's, he's been able to kind of fill a lot of hats as I've needed things. But, um, really I think the most joy has come from us being able to do these duo shows, which we've only really been doing the last two or three years. Um, we've always, you know, played together and done things but it was only in the past two or three years that we really started to put together a set of music and kind of go what what would we do if we were really doing a true duo show not just him playing you know music that I've already written and recorded and somebody else has played on and he's kind of filling this role but what happens if we you know actually because he's an incredible songwriter too and writes some amazing instrumental tunes and things like that so it's been kind of fun to get a chance to go what do we do separate from that he's normally doing away from me and anything that I'm normally doing away from him what is it if we kind of try to find an identity that's totally our own thing and so it's been really fun um there's definitely moments of you know just like anybody I think that works with their spouse it's like there's a comfort that's both a beautiful thing and sometimes a difficult thing because we're like dreadfully honest with one another sometimes. So, you know, sometimes that's a, <laughs> you know how that is. It's like the way you would speak to your spouse about something. There's a lot of just like, you know, when we're talking about something, I don't like that. Or, oh, I like that. Well, nah, let's not do that. You know, and we're, we're both very um, independent people, just independent human beings. You know, we both lived alone separately for many years before we actually got married and, and decided to, you know, be together all the time. So I think there's, there's something when you have two really strong opinionated individuals that can be a really beautiful thing, but just like anything, you know, we're married. So there's times where we butt heads a little over it, but we're both very passionate about it. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I can't imagine us not having that with one another because it's, you know, it's been a part of our uh, chemistry from the very beginning, you know, so. Hmm, wonderful. Um, one of my favorite videos that I found on YouTube recently is you and Sam Bush playing Turkey in the Straw. I think it's at Gray, Gray Fox. And it's, yeah. it's so much fun, but there's a wonderful introduction. And Sam talks about you as being the the female mandolin player that's kicking all the old guys' butts in bluegrass music. 
I just got to tell you how proud I am of Sierra for kicking the good old boys in the ass in the world of Manly. Bluegrass, it ain't just for boys anymore. I want a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> All right, let's play a little bit. You going? I met Sam once and I loved him and I'd love to I'd love to meet him again he's he seems like such a, a such a cool guy but and this is funny I, I probably wouldn't ask a man this question well I mean I know I wouldn't because it's it's a different conversation but recently I, I would have seen on Twitter because I would follow a lot of country music stars uh, just out of curiosity to see what they do on Twitter that there was this huge conversation happening around female country singers not being played on commercial uh, radio stations in the US and there was a big, big movement to try and pressure uh, uh, stations to play their music. And so what's it like for you being a very, very successful and well-known woman in bluegrass music, which is essentially traditionally or historically a male-dominated um, musical genre? Do you, is there any pressure with that or is it exciting or are you, does it bother you in any way? No, you know, honestly, like thinking back to when I was really young and stuff, um, it's funny how it never really bothered me. I never really thought much about it. You know, as a young kid, you're just going and you're jamming. And of course, I would look around and most of the time it was me and a bunch of old dudes in a circle <laughs> jamming. But they were always really kind to me and very welcoming. I never was made to feel like I didn't belong. And so I'm really grateful for that. I know there have been plenty of women who have felt that before but I think I was always very accepted I felt like by my you know fellow uh, uh 
uh, male musicians, um, both older people and peers. Um, but I do remember the first time, all my heroes, you know, I wish I could say that I had female mandolin heroes growing up, but I, I didn't. There really weren't any. There weren't any that I was listening to that were really, um, you know, making me sit down with their records and learn to play it. Mostly was all guys. And, you know, at the time, I, whatever, those are just your heroes. You love them. And you don't really think anything about that, you know. And I, like I said, I always felt accepted. So I, I never really had a real pushback or, or reason to think about, uh, you know, huh, I'm the only, I'm the only woman. That's just kind of how it was. And I saw, I saw, um, you know, Alison Krauss, who, like I said, became my hero. And, and looking back, it's like, maybe I was really drawn to her because she was a woman, you know, too. Maybe, maybe part of why she became my big hero is because she felt like this exception, you know, this woman who had gone on and achieved all these amazing things in what felt like a predominantly male world. But there were lots of women out there that there have been for years who have, you know, certainly paved the way. I remember the first time that I saw um, a Rhonda Vincent album cover. I remember, you know, I didn't know who she was at the time. We were very new to bluegrass and just learning about all these different great people. And I remember uh, we would go to, I grew up in a really tiny town of about 900 people. There's no music stores or anything like that there. Rural Tennessee. Um, and so we would drive 30 minutes or so to the next town over, which was a little bigger. They had a Walmart there. And this was back when Walmart actually had CDs and you could go in and they had a little bluegrass section. And that was the only place around where I grew up that you could even get anything like that. And so it felt like every week we would go to the gym and we would get a, a new CD. And I remember flipping through some of them as a, a little girl and trying to just, you know, my dad was looking over here and I'm looking over here and I, I pull out this album cover and it's Rhonda Vincent. Uh, and you know, she's holding a mandolin on the front cover. And it's funny. I remember the first thing I thought it felt like seeing a unicorn a little bit. I was like, you know, and she had like dark hair at the time. And I remember as a little girl thinking, that's going to be, that's going to be me someday. I'm going to be a grown woman playing mandolin. It's just a funny thing, but it was like one of the first times that I had really saw myself on one of these album covers. Cause even as much as I loved Alison Krauss, she wasn't a mandolin player. So actually seeing like a, a woman holding a mandolin on the cover was like, how cool is that? You know, so there would be moments of course, along the way where I would sort of realize, okay, there's not that many women around. Um, but there certainly have been incredible women, you know, long before I came around that that paved the way and, and made it much easier for somebody like myself to come along. Alison Brown, I remember getting an Alison Brown album, you know, with her holding the banjo. And I just thought it was so cool that she was that good, you know, because there was plenty of people that would play, but they were maybe singers first, you know, not really trying to. I mean, they weren't trying to be instrumentalists, you know, not that they couldn't have been, but it just wasn't the thing that they were driven to you would see somebody like Alison Brown who was clearly an instrumentalist and somebody that was writing instrumental tunes and and uh, I mean I always wanted to sing too I always you know especially being influenced by somebody like Alison Krauss I loved those albums for the singing as much as anything but 
But when I would see an instrumentalist, uh, you know, of course, Krauss is a killer fiddle player. That was one of the things I always really was drawn to about her, too, is because I, I love her fiddle playing. I mean, I feel like she's a very underrated fiddle player, you know, was a champion fiddle player before she was known as a singer. And a lot of folks just know her, you know, primarily as a singer. But yeah, so there have been a lot of women that I've certainly looked to and been like, wow, that's really really awesome and been able to sort of be encouraged by and identify. Um, but it's not something I really sit around and think about too much, yeah. <laughs> even still, yeah. even still, cause there's, there's more women than ever before, more young girls. I mean, I meet girls constantly that come up to me at the record table after a show and you'll say, you know, I've been playing mandolin for a year or whatever. And it's so exciting. So I have no doubt, but what, you know, the next generation of female musicians and, and players is going to be stronger than ever. And that's really exciting. Hmm. What kind of mandolin do you play? I assume you have more than one, but what, 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 what's your favorite? Well, the main one that I tour with and, and play with most often is a 2009 Gibson master model. So it's i uh, I've had it since 2009. It was uh, basically brand new when I got it. And it was, um, I had a few things that Dave Harvey, the guy at Gibson that built it, um, did to it. So it has a little bit of an aged finish. Of course, I've certainly, you know, worn it down a little bit myself through playing it so much. But uh, the neck's a little bit smaller than your your average master model. And typically the fretboard on those F-style mandolins, um, kind of like the old lures and stuff, the, the fretboard extends well, you know, beyond and almost like a little Florida shape kind of thing they call it and so you know if you're picking a lot of times the pick will hit those frets they're basically just they're not playable really they're decorative you know so the pick will hit those and make a real clicking noise and so what people started doing is shaving that down so the fretboard just scoops down when it gets to that part so basically the original master model design has the extension and he just scooped that out for me so I wouldn't get the pick noise um oh. but yeah that's basically it <laughs> what kind of a pick do you use i use a blue chip uh so they're built here in tennessee made here in east tennessee um pretty much a uh standard these days at mm -hmm. least in the the bluegrass world and um i use uh it's a triangular shape and so it's called a tad is the model they have loads of different models but a tad uh 60 is the have you one I use. Have you tried the, I assume you've tried Wiegands, have you? The, you know, the white ones with the little holes. I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long time, but yeah, I have yeah. in the past. Those are great too. Yeah, I have I have a blue chip and I have a Wiegand, and, um, but I don't have a bluegrass mandolin. I have an Irish one, but the, the Wiegand sounds wonderful on it. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that's the thing is I'm, I use those. I really like, I really like the blue chip picks a lot, um, but I'm also not a real gear hound. I'm not somebody that's just, you know, constantly trying different things or, or for that matter, constantly dissatisfied. I think, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's like I can kind of find something that works and I tend to hang on to it for a long time uh -huh. um, until something just gets put in my hand and then I try it and go, okay, cool. Well, that's great. I'll do that for a while. So I think, uh, I don't know. Everybody's different about that, but See I'm, Nobody, I'm somebody that if it's working, I don't stress about it too much. Yeah, they still haven't invented the perfect uh, banjo pick. And so I've used, uh, I must have used seven different types over the last few years. 
and I use two to three every night and then chuck them away at the end of the night because they're just soft plastic wow. picks and they just wear down and once the edge has gone off them. So I wish there was a blue chip vegan type pick for banjo. They're, they're too heavy is for it, Irish banjo. Yeah, so, so how thin is the pick that you use on the Irish banjo? So it's a 0.6. Similarly, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah so 0.6 of a mil. So quite a bit of movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's that yeah. kind of sweet spot between soft and too hard, I guess. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. Where, where in blue, whereas in bluegrass yak, your pick, if you can move your pick like that, it's, you know, yeah. almost useless, you know, because you're not going to get, uh, especially with, you know, bluegrass tunes and mandolin. It's like the tone is just such a different, it, the tonal aspect of what you're going for is so different, I think, you know. So, so. Uh, I have one last question. Is it a capo or a capo? I say capo. <laughs> <laughs> do you what, say ca capo? Yeah, but what do you wear on your head? A cape or a cap? Oh. Uh, well, it depends on the day. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen, Sarah, thank you so much for, for, for chatting with me. I appreciate it. Um, it's been wonderful. Oh, thank you for having me. What's, uh, what's next for you? Uh, or is there a next? I mean, everybody has stuff planned, but there's nothing concrete, I guess. Yeah, I I mean, who knows when we'll be back out on the road, you know, so all of that's certainly just a waiting game to see, you know, see what happens in the world and, and when we can all get back to whatever the new normal is. But for now, yeah, just, you know, chipping away at home, trying to work music and, and trying to stay inspired and, um, you know, continuing to create. Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo3.com to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time inside the Banjo.